Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Hope everyone's doing okay. Brent's out on a cruise, and so I'll be getting the opportunity to preach uh, for the next few weeks. And we're going to be studying in the book of 1 Kings, if you want to be following along in our study, uh, and looking at the life of Elijah. Uh, As Brent does, I wanted to make mention of our lectureship. We're now within one month of this lectureship, so uh, let's be sure that we're not uh, over-scheduling our calendars. Let's make sure that we're making way for this uh, event. It's going to be an awesome study with Shane Scott and Tommy Peeler coming to present to us uh, messages about hope in the midst of our suffering and how Jesus is giving us the hope message throughout the Old Testament uh, as well as the New. So there's a lot of really good uh, sermons that we have to look forward to uh, in August. So be preparing for that. Uh, in the in the scripture reading that was just read, we saw how Omri was the king over Israel, and it's it says of him that he was uh, the worst king. He was he was more evil than all who were before him. Uh, and then we read at the end of that, in verse twenty eight, that Ahab his son reigned in his place whenever he died. Um, you know, actually, things were probably going really well for Israel. Uh, at this time. Uh, whenever we get to the book of 1 Kings chapter 16 and 29 and following, we see that there is a strategic alliance that is set up that Omri establishes. He marries his son Ahab to Jezebel, who is a princess of the city of Tyre. And Tyre is a very, very wealthy city. It's a very important city for trade to to go in and out of. Tyre is a very uh, profitable uh, endeavor for the Israelites to join themselves to an alliance. Now they have Jezebel uh, as their queen and Ahab as their king. And and Israel is producing crops and they're providing a harvest that, that can be sent out to the world. And now they've got a way to get their product out to the nation so that they can become extremely wealthy among all the nations. Everything is set up for success in Israel, but there's a problem. Uh, Jezebel brings with her 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah to establish her new religion in Israel. You see, uh, whenever Jezebel comes in, she sees uh, how things are and she starts thinking, well, we can, we can make this even better. And, and she's bringing in these, these gods that are going to increase the fertility of the land of Israel. Uh, Baal is the fertility god and, and, and allow their crops to be abundant. And also, uh, he's going to set up an Asherah, which is going to uh, be the god of fortresses to protect the cities uh, that are being established. So Samaria is going to be the capital. And in that capital, Ahab builds a place of worship for Baal and an Asherah, which is this, this statue, in honor of these new gods that Israel is now going to uh, be worshiping. And they, they, they decide now that they are going to completely transition the, re- the religion of all Israel from worship the God of Israel, Yahweh, to worshiping Baal and to worshiping the Asherah. There's a major transition that's going on in Israel at this time. And and as we as we read through this section, what you see is that 
Ahab has many claims to fame. Like his father, it says that he did more evil than all who were before him. Well, that sounds like what we just read about Omri. So here's Ahab just adding to the sins of his father. And he is the one who did more to provoke the Lord to to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Not only is he doing what Jeroboam has done in the past by allowing the people to go to Bethel and Dan to worship these calves, which is a common thread throughout the northern kingdom of Israel, but he's adding to it and making it even worse by completely transitioning the people away away from serving Yahweh to now serving these false gods. As a testament to how evil he was, verse 34 tells us that in in his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub according to the word of the Lord, which He spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. You see, whenever Israel came into the promised land and they conquered Jericho, uh, they, they completely demolished it by, remember, walking around and blowing trumpets and the, the walls fell down and the, the place was totally destroyed and they were able to go in and pillage and take whatever they needed. But after that happened, Joshua said this curse. He said in Joshua 6.26, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and builds this, rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. This curse was being pronounced by Joshua after Jericho had fallen. And what we read here in this text is a little commentary about how bad Ahab was. How how far Israel is straying from the word of the Lord. Joshua had clearly said, whoever rebuilds Jericho, their firstborn will die and then their youngest son will die as he's building it. They didn't pay any attention to that curse. Ahab and and Heel paid no attention to that curse. Maybe even had no idea that it even existed. And they just went to town rebuilding Jericho thinking, oh, this is going to be such a strategic location. It's not far from Jerusalem. Our enemies, the the Judah and uh, their, their kinsmen. And so they're setting up this beautiful city that was once great to be great again, not realizing that Heel is going to lose his firstborn and his youngest son in the process. That's how far they had gone from the Word of the Lord. They didn't know anything about it. And they're just inviting in the curses uh, that were from their ancestors that were from God. I want us to imagine living at that time. Just picture yourself alive at that time. Everybody is is excited. There's a new trend that's going on. There's new gods to worship. We've got to figure out this new way of worship. And, and there's all this prosperity because, hey, now we're joined with Tyre and, and we've got all this trade and, and our, our crops are worth so much to these other nations and, and things are going great. But maybe we're, we're those who serve the Lord and we're thinking, well, I don't know about this. This doesn't sound good to me. Uh, you know. But we see all of our family getting rich and turning away from the Lord. But we're decided we're going to stick it out. And then what happens? Well, they may tolerate our resistance for a little while. 
But then after a while, you kind of would get the pressure of, well, you're not worshiping our gods and they're the ones providing us with all this. And you're not, you're not coming into the temple where the best of the goods are, so you have no part in any of these things. This is the way that it would typically work as, as people resist the religion that, that's going on in society. And so imagine being dealing with the pressures of this. Uh, just pursue this false religion. Just pursue Baal. Just pursue Asherah. And your life will be much easier. And we might be tempted to say, well, it's just a place everybody else is going to. Uh, you know, refusing to go there would be old-fashioned. And, and, and why wouldn't we pursue what's to our greatest advantage? What's, what's to our best benefit? God wants us to be happy, doesn't He? I'll, I'll, I'll serve God in my heart, but I'll go and I'll worship this just to get things a little bit easier. Maybe something like that is going on at that time. And, and so people are probably starting to falter because their leadership is going after Baal and going after Asherah. And they may be tempted to do the same thing. They're not really worshiping God according to the law of Moses anyway. So why not? And then chapter 17 comes rushing in. Notice it just transitions like immediately. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes Elijah. He doesn't give much of an introduction or a setup. It doesn't talk about his history. It just says he's a, a, a Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead. That's all we get about Elijah. He all of a sudden comes rushing onto the scene and here he says, as sure as he lives and, and before whom I stand, this God is going to make sure that there is no rain in Israel. Uh, there's this bad news coming from Elijah as he announces a drought. Well, why would God choose to use a drought? Of all the punishments that God could come up with, all of a sudden He comes, He sends His prophet onto the scene and He says, there's going to be no rain and no dew. Dew would have also been an important thing because uh, the, the Valley of Jezreel, which is where a lot of the crops are, would be completely uh, fertilized, fertile from the moisture that is in the dew. I mean, that's a major thing. It would be like it rained every night just from the dew alone. Why would he choose that? Why would he choose drought? Well, obviously, nobody wants to endure drought, right? This is going to be a painful suffering. And, and this actually lines up with Deuteronomy. Uh, the curses that God said that He would give in Deuteronomy... Uh, is that he said in Deuteronomy eleven sixteen and 17, "...take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will shut up the heavens, so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you, and you will perish quickly off the good land the Lord has given you." So, obviously, this drought is in line with the covenantal curses that God had, had proclaimed for Israel, if you go off and serve other gods, then I'm going to cut off the rain. But as long as you, as you serve me, I'm going to give you plenty of rain. So obviously that's a big part of it. But it goes beyond that. It's not just that the, the lack of rain would be detrimental to the people. But the lack of rain is making a very important statement against Baal. He sends a death blow 
to their false religion. Like all of a sudden, they're, they're changing over. Now we're worshiping Baal. Now we're going to have even greater crops. Everything's going to go even better for us because of this God. And now the drought's about to start. God knows what He's doing here. Drought, the drought that they're receiving is supposed to make them stop and think about their, their life choices. <laughs> Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. As the rain stops coming and the ground stops being fertile as a result of their worship of Baal. Uh, As we look at this, we see nations uh, that are striving after this God and everybody thinks, oh yeah, we'll join in and we'll do that and everything will go great. And God is saying, no Israel, you are my people and I have been providing for you. And if you are going to pursue those things, then you're not going to get the blessings that I've been providing. In fact, I'm going to curse you. And, and your bail is not going to help you. The people are trying to trust in something other than God. And God is saying, that's a huge mistake. Well, this to me has, a, has an extremely important application for us. I mean, serving God in this life may not always result in bountiful physical blessings, but uh, as, as we go through periods of drought in our lives, whenever a bill hits us in the face we didn't see coming, uh, uh, we lose a job, several things go wrong at the same time, we get injured or we lose a loved one or something terrible just seems to be keep, keep happening as, as a result of life and, and the things that are going on around us. These are opportunities for us. This is, this is a way, maybe like Andy said last week, for God to goad us, to make us think, what am I putting my trust in? Am I putting my trust in my job? Am I putting my trust in my money? Am I putting my trust in my family? Am I putting my trust in uh, this, work, this world and the things that are here? What am I putting my trust in? And are those things really providing me with the satisfaction that I need? Are they really giving me life? Are they helping me with living? And the answer is no. All of these blessings that we enjoy, we're supposed to look around and see they all come from God. And God giveth and God taketh away and blessed be the name of the Lord as we endure different droughts and struggles in our lives. We might see those around us uh, you know, worshiping and pursuing other gods to provide them with what they need to be satisfied on this earth. But as we look at them, we, we, we might be enticed to go after them. But we're supposed to be reminded in all the struggles in life that there is ultimately one God who provides us everything and we must be faithful to Him. Well... As we continue in in reading, we see Elijah has spoken this word to the king and the word comes to him in verse 3 saying, Depart from here and go eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. Now all of a sudden, God is commanding uh, Elijah to run away, to go to the brook Kareth to find shelter and to be safe. And what we find out later is that it's because Ahab is going to be seeking after him and trying to kill him. And verse verse 4 says, You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. 
So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So here we see God commanding Elijah, alright, here's where I want you to go. And I'm going to provide for you drink, and I'm going to provide for you meat, and I'm going to provide for you bread. He commands Elijah to escape and says, I'm going to be the one who provides for you, Elijah. And what's interesting, there's, there's more to it than just a little bit. That Oh, yeah, that's kind of neat that God's going to take care of him and He's going to send ravens to provide him with food and, and water from the brook. Okay, that's amazing. That's a miracle. That's really cool. But there's a number of things in this that are extremely fascinating. On one, for, for one thing, the meat being provided and the bread being provided twice a day is twice as much food as Israel received while wandering in the wilderness. They got their manna in the morning, they got their quail at night, and that's all that they got. But here Elijah is given basically double of what those wandering in the wilderness were being given. Isn't that fascinating that God is providing for Elijah bountifully beyond what he did for even Israel as he is in this wilderness situation. God is seeing to it that he is taken care of. I mean, picture this. The ravens are coming to Elijah to drop off the food every morning and every evening. And and what's fascinating about that is ravens are unclean animals. God is using unclean animals to bring Elijah bread and meat and bread and meat every single day. Isn't that fascinating? That God's using this animal that's unclean. Why is He doing that? Well, God always works in ways we wouldn't expect. God always does things that, that seem like they just don't really make a whole lot of sense. Why, why is He doing that? Well, it's, it's very interesting. He works and He uses everything at His disposal. It's all part of His creation and He has power over all of it. And He's providing this for Elijah as Elijah is there. Imagine being Elijah, waking up in the morning, I'm thirsty, going to the brook, getting plenty of water, looking up, oh look, ravens, eating, getting your bread, getting your meat, cooking it, and eating it. And then you, you pray to God, you worship all day, and then, oh, I'm thirsty again. You go back to the brook, you get you something to drink. Oh, look, ravens. It, I mean, every day, this is His routine. Constantly being fed and provided for by God, who is who's able to do this through the most unlikely of means. Uh, this is a this is a very interesting story that's going to continue past this, and we're just going to kind of put a mark in this and think about this story today, and that's that's going to be it. And we're going to continue to look at this in the next two weeks. Uh, the the life of Elijah as it continues is full of all kinds of miracles, but let's stop and let's think about this situation and try to understand what it is that we learn uh, from this story. First of all. I think it's very important to to remember what Elijah said to Ahab in verse 1 of chapter 17. Verse 1 of chapter 17, Now Elijah of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Notice some of the words that Elijah uses here. 
as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. You think that's a, that's a poke at uh, Ahab and all of Israel who have now turned completely away from God, thinking, oh, well, God's not doing anything for us. I think it is. I think it's kind of a, a jab at them. They're thinking, oh, God's dead. God can't do anything for us anymore. We don't need His Word. We don't need to obey Him or do anything that He asks us to do. And, and, and we're just moving on from God to the next trend. This seems to be working for those entire. So now we're just going to move on from God and we're going to do something else. And Elijah says, my God lives. This is a big statement that, that Elijah is making before the king, saying, your gods are dead. My God lives. And all of this curse and everything that's about to happen is making this statement to all of Israel. This is the God who lives. Elijah is sent to make this statement clear. God is the one who's in control of all of these blessings that you have been receiving. And God can take them away. And your gods can do nothing to stop Him. Also we see, uh, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. We see Elijah is standing before God. And he, he trusts in God. And notice how Elijah is coming before Ahab and, provide, and providing this information unafraid of what the king might do. Now, I imagine at this time the king would probably just laugh at him and say, oh, okay, uh, no, no, no rain, okay, sure. Uh, but, but even so, coming before the king and pronouncing a curse on his nation... That's probably a scary thing for most of us to do. <laughs> I don't think we would want to do that. And even if he didn't believe and he let us leave, imagine whenever the curse takes place. I mean, you're signing your own death warrant saying, uh, I am the reason behind this, you know. Uh, and, and, if you, and basically Ahab thinks about this and says, we got to kill him in order to get the rain back. So Elijah is setting himself up to be in great danger, but he's trusting in God because he stands before a living God who is able to, to provide the, the curses that he's pronouncing and is able to take care of him. Now what's interesting about this is we don't see in here that any background to this statement from Elijah. He's not coming in knowing what God's going to do next. He has no idea. But what he knows is that the God whom I stand before is greater than the king is. And he's greater than any of their gods or any of those things. He's, he's the greatest. So he, he's considering the God that he stands before and he's unafraid to approach those who need to hear the rebuke of God and to tell them what they must do and what, what God is planning for them. But also we see in, in chapter 17, verse 1, that God has heard Elijah's prayer. Now you may not see that. As you look at this, you're like, wait a second. Um, notice the words. As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Notice how Elijah doesn't say... God has commanded me to come to you, Ahab, and to pronounce to you the curses of Deuteronomy 11 that you will not have any more rain uh, for until He commands it again that it will rain. He doesn't say it like that. 
Notice the way that he says it. He says, except by my word. That's the circumstances. Whenever Elijah says it will rain again, then it will rain again. This is fascinating because it may have been God's idea, but we don't get the impression that it's dependent primarily on God, but that Elijah is being taken into account in all of this. Elijah has some value in all of this cursing that's going on against the nation. Whenever we get to the book of James, what's amazing is James tells us it was primarily Elijah who brought about this curse on Israel. In James 5.17 we read, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. The most amazing part of this story is that Elijah is the one who asked God for the drought. He may not have actually asked specifically for the drought, but he asked God to do something to turn the heart of the king and to turn the heart of the people back to God. And he is commanded to go to the king and to to give it in this way. This is amazing. God is is listening to His servant's prayer and He is sending him to the king to make this statement that there will be a drought all because of Elijah's prayer. All because Elijah had a zeal and a jealous spirit that he wanted Israel to serve the Lord and be faithful to Him. And he's going to God in prayer asking that God do something to turn their hearts All of this has a direct application to us. All of this does. We live in a society that believes that God is dead and that wants to trust all kinds of other gods. They want to trust science. They want to trust materialism. They want to trust uh, pleasures in this life. They want to trust their financial security. They want to trust their fame. They want to trust their sports. They want to trust everything that this life has to offer as though that is what's going to give them uh, a satisfaction, a fulfillment in this life. And what we see is there's only one living God. There's only one who provides us with everything that we enjoy. And as, as we receive pressure, as those around us are, are enticing us to, to, to strive after the same kinds of things that they're striving after, to keep up with the Joneses and, and to pursue a love of career or a love of fame or a love of success or whatever it is that, that we're enticed to pursue, we know that there's only one God who truly satisfies. There's only one God that, that we should be worshiping with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Also, we see that All of God's servants stand before God. We don't have to fear the power of man. As we we decide we're going to put our trust in God like Elijah did, as we we go before those who, who ridicule and mock our beliefs, we don't have to be afraid of them. It may be that they have great power on this earth, but they have no power before God. As we're at school and and people who are uh, teaching us or over us or authorities over us, they have no power over God. 
As we're at work and our supervisor tries to force us to do something that is wrong or that is unethical, that goes against what God wants us to do. They have no power over us. They have no power over God. God is the ultimate one whom we stand before. And we don't have to be afraid of whatever punishment they might give us because God is ultimately able to take care of us and provide us with everything that we need. And the most amazing uh, part is that God hears our prayers. I love this. In, in James chapter 5, verse 17, I love how it starts. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I'll tell you what, I don't, I don't look at the story of Elijah and start thinking, wow, he's just like me. <laughs> But that's what James tells us. He was a man with a nature like ours. And what did he do? He prayed fervently to God that it not rain and it held back rain for three and a half years. God heard his prayer and he listened. But notice what Elijah was praying for. That's, that's another fascinating thing about this story. Elijah just sticks out so much throughout all of Scripture. He's this amazing figure that, that just suddenly comes onto the scene. But he's praying for Israel to receive whatever they, they need in order to turn their hearts back to God. The drought, uh, withholding rain, is the, the, the way that he wants God to turn their hearts back to him. That they would go without materialistic things. That they would suffer for a time with with lack of food. Imagine he's there by the brook receiving all this and all Israel is receiving nothing and they're dying and they're wasting away. That's what Elijah's praying to happen. He didn't necessarily ask for the the, the gifts that he got. He may have even considered that he was going to suffer with Israel in all of this. But he wanted Israel to wake up from their days, from their stupor, from their focus on their success and their material gain, and to see the one true living God is the only one to put their trust in. We have to look at that and think, am I willing to say that prayer? As we live in a society that is extremely wealthy and blessed beyond measure, are we willing to sacrifice all those things if, if that meant maybe their hearts would turn to God? Are we willing to pray fervently to God to take away these blessings that He might be glorified and that the world might be turned around? You know, that's a hard thing to actually follow through with. But we see Elijah is a man with a nature like ours who prays that way, who thinks that way. And we need to be encouraged to follow after that example. Uh, What's amazing to me also is that in the New Testament, we have John the Baptist come onto the scene and he's called an Elijah. He's wearing camel hair like Elijah. He's as immaterialistic as anybody, just like Elijah. And he is out proclaiming the truth and preparing the way for the Lord like Elijah is, saying... Pay attention to what God is about to provide you to wake you up. And in this case, He provides us with Jesus. And as we, as we go out into the world, we may be tempted to be afraid of the society that doesn't believe in Jesus. We may be tempted to, to hold back the message, but we see Elijah proclaiming it. We need to do the same thing. We see him praying and, and proclaiming 
uh, for God's glory. And this ought to be our focus in this life. And with God's help, uh, we can become the prayer warriors that are needed to turn this community around, to turn this world around. Let's let's think about these things and focus on this. And if anybody here this morning has not received God's grace and become a child of His, if you've been trusting in these other things that won't provide you with the fulfillment and the satisfaction you need, and you know what you need to do in order to receive the blessings God offers, or if you don't know, we can help you. Uh, Please come forward if you have need as we stand and as we sing.